Our invocation this morning comes from Gwen Matthews. And she says, You are the holiday miracle. As December opens up before us, we welcome in the gift of reflection. We turn toward our holiday celebrations and search for common threads of meaning. We begin with Yule, the winter solstice, and we are invited to explore duality, cycles, and seasons, and to witness the Holly King being overcome by the Oak King. Yule reminds us that we all partake in the miracle of renewal. Hanukkah, the festival of lights, commemorates a time of miracles when the faith of the Jewish people sustained them to reclaim their holy temple and keep the light of the menorah burning for eight days. Christmas, the celebration of Jesus' humble birth in a manger, offers us the opportunity to revisit the miracle of birth and the desire to find saviors to heal the scars of humanity. Here in our fellowship, you are just as much a holiday miracle as the turning of the earth, as persistence and dedication to a faith, as the creation of a new life. We see the love you give to others, the space you create to hold one another's joys and sorrows, and the generosity and spirit you entrust to this community. You are the holiday miracle. And this community is one of miracle makers. Candles are added to the menorah from, left to, from right to left, but are kindled from left to right. The newest candle is lit first. On the Shabbat of Hanukkah, you kindle the Hanukkah lights first and then the Shabbat candles. We kindle this light because of the wondrous deliverance you performed for our ancestors. 
During these eight days of Hanukkah, these lights are sacred. We are not to use them, but only to behold them so that their glow may rouse us to give thanks for your wondrous acts of deliverance. The reading I'd like to share in this moment is from Amanda Udis Kessler. We light the Hanukkah candles in wonder, joy, and gratitude. Each candle a miracle. When the Holy Temple was rededicated at the time of the Maccabean liberation battle, only one day's worth of oil remained. Yet it burned for eight days. So we light candles in remembrance. We rededicate ourselves to the miracle of light in a season of darkness. To the miracle of trust in a time of anxiety to the miracle of hope in a time of despair, to the miracle of faith in a time of cynicism. We rededicate ourselves to the miracle of wholeness in a time of fracture, to the miracle of courage in a time of fear, to the miracle of resistance in a time of oppression, to the miracle of peace in a time of violence. And in a time of hatred, we rededicate ourselves to the miracle of love. So sometimes the Almighty says to me, you should have waited to write your sermon. <laughs> this was one of those times. I uh, was reading in the Baltimore Sun this morning, perhaps you saw this article about the lighting of menorahs in public spaces, the large menorahs in public spaces. An Orthodox rabbi, rabbi by the name of Shalom, I hope I'm not mispronouncing it, Zerkind, Zerkind, presides over the lighting of a 12-foot menorah in Baltimore and says, it's especially meaningful in this year when expressions of anti-Semitic hate seem to be exponentially rising. And I love what he says. The message of Hanukkah can be found in that old saying, darkness isn't pushed with a broom. <laughs> the only way to combat senseless love is with, senseless hate is with senseless love. Now, maybe you've heard that before, but I think senseless love perfectly sums up everything Unitarian Universalism. I mean, we have a lot of sense, too. <laughs> but, <laughs> but senseless love, love that doesn't really make sense and that's not entirely logical, but that persists, that persists. And sometimes it's just a tiny little flame and you kind of wonder if it's going to keep flickering. And sometimes it's a 32-ton menorah, however big the menorah is, that's lit in New York. That's the biggest one in the world. It, uh, it apparently, and I did not know this until I, I read a little bit more about it, but it, it, there was kind of a, a movement several decades ago to bring the lighting of the menorah out of 
homes and living rooms where it could be protected from public scrutiny, to bring it into the open and to be able to say, we are a religious people who have had to wrestle with persecution for many millennia, but here we are bringing our faith, the light of our hope, into the public square because that's what you do with love. You share it and you bring it out. Perhaps you know the expression, justice is love, is what love looks like in public. That's, I, I love that too. So I'm going to start this morning to say with all of you that by this small act of lighting these two candles this morning, we are bringing senseless love out into the public square. So I thank you again. So Antiochus Epiphanes, which means Antiochus the not quite sane, <laughs> inherited a big chunk of Alexander the Great's empire. He inherited the, the Syrian chunk, and in that big chunk he also uh, got rulership over the Jewish people. And this is historical fact. Many of the, the stories written about in, in the sacred writings of the, the Hebrew Testament are, are based in history. Many, many are not. But this one is. And so Antiochus Epiphanes, also known as Antiochus the Wicked, he doesn't seem to have left any um, helpful publicists in his, in his wake. One of the rabbis who wrote about him said that he combined all of the worst characteristics of the Greeks and the Romans. <laughs> so that's an ouch in, uh, in ancient world terms. But he wanted to, he understood this. He understood what tyrants often seem to understand, that if you want to destroy a people, you destroy from the inside out, right? You destroy what gives life meaning. So he outlawed the celebration of Jewish festivals. So the notion of historically bringing a celebration out into public has great meaning, right? He outlawed the celebration of Jewish festivals. He outlawed circumcision, a key practice in, in this culture and religious faith. He confiscated the sacred books. He sent armies to to torment and plunder and capture and sell people into slavery. And he profaned the Jerusalem temple. He not only held uh, sacrifices that would have been considered pagan and that would have defiled the temple, but he forced the Jewish people to participate and to, and to watch. Now, there were as in any community or any group of communities, there were different kinds of, of ways of relating to this rule of Antiochus. But a group of rebels who came to be known as the Maccabees and eventually the, the Hasmonean dynasty took up arms. There were those who collaborated with, with his, his regime and there were those who probably were stuck in the middle. 
But this, this group of rebels took up arms, and in the space of a couple of years, they in fact defeated the armies of Antiochus. And there are many stories about this because this is the, there are stories of Hanukkah. There's not one sort of story alone. But the story is Hanukkah means dedication, rededication, that on the anniversary of this particularly heinous sacrifice that Antiochus had forced the people to participate in, the temple was cleansed and rededicated to the faith. And that there was not, because the armies had plundered everything of value in the temple, there was not enough oil, and then that the miraculous oil lasted for, for the eight days. Now, Ami and Brenna have told me, as have others, Hanukkah's not the major, it's not a major festival. It's not like, you know, uh, Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur or the celebration of the Passover. But at this time of year, and in this place where we find ourselves, not just as a people, but as a community, it felt important to me to invite us to reflect on this place where the spiritual and the political, for lack of a better word, the spiritual and the reality in which we find ourselves externally come together, where one weaves into the other and vice versa. Because this is an uneasy place for many of us. It's not as though there's one camp and another. There's a continuum. There's a continuum of experiences. There's a continuum of expressions of even evolution from one side up and down to the other. I might find myself over here at age 20 and over here at age 30 and over here, I'm not going to tell you what age. Because <laughs> vanity is still part of my issue. <laughs> Just kidding, I'll tell you if you pay me, no. What is beautiful, or particularly beautiful and meaningful to me in this, these stories of Hanukkah is at the fact that at the center, at the core, is the light that doesn't go out. The lamp oil that continues to burn, that continues to illuminate allow us to see more clearly, allow us to see our way, allow us to keep hope alive, to keep inspiration alive. You know, over the 2000s, so Antiochus's antics, that's kind of funny, isn't it? But anyway, his, his reign lasted from about the year 169 before the Common Era to the year 166. It wasn't, it wasn't very long. But we're talking about almost 2,200 years ago. 
So it was a long time ago. And in, in those years, the interpretation, you know, the rabbis have kind of fought a little bit with the more secularists. There's been, well, it's all about political liberation. It's all about God. Liberation. God. God in, the light in all of this. Senseless love at the heart of everything. Dear ones, when I shared with you several weeks ago that I felt and, and had responded to a call on my heart, a call to be in solidarity and support and service to the people of the migrant caravan, which is actually many folks are calling the Exodus in with echoes of the ancient Hebrew story. I know, because I felt it, I know that that was an OMG moment. I know there was a lot to unpack, and I know that there were many more questions than there were answers. And I believe, I don't remember 100%, but I believe I may have shared in that, in that moment that the reason I wanted you to know then was because the call was urgent. And I was afraid, I was afraid that it might happen before I had the opportunity to be here in front of you face to face and say, here's, hear it from me, here's what's going on. And it was urgent. Our partners were asking for Spanish-speaking clergy urgently. They also said, this may, not, this may not turn out to be what's helpful, and the election may change things. Right? I'm not sure entirely how the election changed things, but the need for support is perhaps gotten even deeper. Now, they still need Spanish-speaking clergy, but what they need more are Spanish-speaking lawyers, <laughs> which I am not. <laughs> um, and, and as I said earlier in this service today, a, a, a host of other things. But I want, to, I want to get back to what it is, what you and I, and all of us together, I, I feel, need to address. Because in that intervening time, there have been questions about all of this, concerns about all of this, support for all of this, but a lot of questions, many of which have come to me directly and many of which have come less directly. So I'd like, in this moment, I'd like to try to provide some answers to some of those questions. And again, hear me inviting you, as warmly as I know how, to ask me any questions you might still have today or in the weeks to come. It was not, and it is not, my intent to be away from this fellowship for more than, at most, two to three weeks. In, in, in knowing that the need is going to be for months and years, my commitment to you 
is to only be gone for the, in any given year for the amount of time that our letter of call permits me to be gone. That is not going to happen immediately. It's certainly not going to happen before the, the holidays and because it's, it's gotten late. So I want you to know that one of the possibilities where the urgent help is needed, particularly by native Spanish speakers like me, is at Annunciation House in El Paso, Texas, where right now they, can, they know that they need volunteers steadily at least through August 2019 to accompany people to help. I mean, folks need clothes. When they're released from detention, they need clothes. They need translation services. They need pastoral care. They need to know that they are loved. Uh, that's where senseless love comes in. So my expectation is still to serve. That's still a strong call on my heart, but to do so in a way that, that we will all have ample opportunity to, to, to plan. Second question, I want you to know that it has never been for a moment my intention, certainly not at this time, to represent you as a congregation in this effort. You and I haven't had the time to talk this through, to learn what we need to learn, to explore, to make decisions, to, to think about what's involved or what isn't involved. I hope that with the help of the immigration team, which you were all welcome to join, which is a significant number of us, I hope that we will have, continue to have, because we've already started, the time to think and talk and, and look at options and come back to you, hopefully in the spring, with, with some options for things that we can, or for a perspective on this, that we can, as a congregation, sign on to. So that's been clear to me, and so I want you to know that that was never part. I, if, if I had gone three weeks ago, I would have gone as an individual. I would have gone as a Latina woman ordained minister representing my own personal faith and the Unitarian Universalist Association. Which leads me to another question. This is very much a priority and a concerted effort and an area of deep work for our association. Years ago when Sheriff, you may remember the name Sheriff Joe Arpaio. <laughs> I'm not gonna say it, okay. Uh, General Assembly was held in Phoenix and there was a major commitment of the association to working with partners to deal with uh, immigration issues, particularly on the border borders with Central America, because of our values, because of, of how United States immigration policy is often inhumane and unfair. So that is everything, the invitation to accompany 
all, all of these um, other opportunities that you've heard me mention are all part of our association. You should know that the president of our association, and I know this gets tricky, but I want you to hear it from me. The president of our association, the Reverend Susan Frederick Gray, has made a commitment to the spiritual practice of civil disobedience. She and many other clergy in our association, including me, have done this, again, as individuals, and been arrested for it. I want you to hear me say that I recognize that this is an edge. This is an edge for us. But I also, I just, I want you to hear from me, my perspective. This is for me, not something I do lightly, and my solidarity work with the migrant caravan has not, does not include civil disobedience. I just want to stop for a minute. Am I making sense? Are you following me? Yes? Okay. If not, come ask me questions later. What I see as one of the things that at the heart of this is us getting to know each other better and understand each other better explore what our world and our faith calls us to, if anything, in this moment, how we want to respond or not want to respond, or how some of you, maybe some of you would like to come with me to El Paso. The UU College of Social Justice is sponsoring several trips for congregational groups to come to the border and, and learn and be in partnership and be in, you know, uh, in conversation with the real people who are going through this. So it might be that some of you may be inspired or may be interested in coming. And maybe that you won't. I want you to hear me this morning and see me say to you, the promises I made to you last June are promises I have kept and I will keep. I promised you that your concerns would be my concerns. Do you remember those words? I do. I don't promise that I'm not going to piss you off. Oops! Pardon my profanity and deep <laughs> vulgarity. I think that ship sailed anyway. But this is, this is the flickering light. What I'm about to say to you is the flickering light that never goes out. Who we are is people of loving relationship not perfect people. We are the love people 
I'm going to start saying we are the senseless love people because I just think that's so great. I am a person, and I know you are too. We are people who come back to the table again and again. We say, I'm sorry. We say, what will it take to come back into right relationship? Because that's the only way we can be present. And that's the only way we can start to tiptoe out of the comfort zone that means we always have to say only things that other, everyone else is going to like. Do you hear me? If we know, if we know that we will come back again and again to the abundant table, to the abundant feast, we'll be okay. We will be okay. Ashe, my beloved. Amen. And blessed be.